If somebody could just grab me my iPad as well, that would be great. Otherwise, we're without notes. We're flying solo, and you don't want that. <laughs> Praise God. Uh, thank you for being here with us this afternoon at Hope City Church. You're most welcome. Uh, it's really good to see you all, especially on a rainy day like this, Jubilee weekend. We know you've probably all been busy, uh, so it's, it's great to be here with you. We uh, today are continuing our series on the names of God. We're studying together the names of God in the Old Testament, the Hebrew names for God. And today, our verse is actually going to be the very first verse that appears in your Bible. Genesis 1.1. Genesis 1.1, which in the Hebrew reads something like, Breshit bara Elohim et Hashemaim et Haaretz, which means, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And did you hear that word, Elohim? That's the name of God that we're going to be studying today. Before we begin, I'm aware that not everybody here today will have been in the room the last time we studied the names of God together. So I want to, by way of introduction, explain why we are studying these names together. We're studying these names not merely to give ourselves more head knowledge. We're not studying these names just for pure academic interest so that we'll have some more trivia to impress our Christian friends with. That's not why we're doing this. What we're doing is we're actually doing theology together. Say the word theology with me just to wake you up. Just to wake you all up, I understand you've had your lunch, all right? So we're doing theology together. Now, theology, brothers and sisters, is a word that I don't want for us to trip up over. Theology is a discipline. Yes, it's a study. It's an ology. And it's a study of God. That's the word theos, which is God in Greek, and ology, which is a study of. So we're studying God. And it was a discipline that was never meant to be purely academic. It wasn't just supposed to be a study for brain boxes that sit in ivory towers at universities. No, not at all. Theology is the study of God. And therefore, theology is properly an act of worship. Theology is an act of worship. And I think that whenever theology becomes disconnected from worship... It's actually being practiced incorrectly. It's being abused. When you get people studying theology and writing theology that don't love the God that theology reveals, that's an abuse. That's a terrible misuse of theology. And I think because of this abuse, theology has become an object of derision, an object of scorn for many Christians you know, you don't go into many churches today and hear the word theology thrown about, do you? Unless it's in a negative sense. You know, like, we don't need theology, we just need Jesus. You might hear that said. Or, you know, God's not interested in your theology. He's not interested in your theology. He's just interested in your heart. I don't know what they mean. But brothers and sisters... You can't know Jesus apart from theology. You can't know God apart from theology. Every single one of you 
does theology every time you pray. Every time you worship, every time you lift your hands and sing, you're in a sense doing theology. Because theology is worship, brothers and sisters. Theology is worship. You can't love somebody that you don't know anything about, can you? The reason we do theology, the reason why we study these things, the names of God together, is because we want to know God more so that we can love him more, so that we can worship him more. Now when I go into Christian circles, if I go into church meetings and I hear the pastors say, you don't need theology, you just need Jesus, it strikes me as strange. It strikes me as an odd thing to say because if I was hanging out with one of my friends and he said to me, listen, I love my wife so much, I don't care about her preferences. I don't need to know what she likes. I love her so much, you know, I'm not interested in her personality. I just love her too much. I would think that his marriage was destined for ruin. There's a man who's in trouble. So we study God because we love God. We do theology because we want to know the God who we worship. Amen? And so we're learning these names together so that we might worship him all the more because of who he is. Amen? We want to worship God according to who he is. And that's why in this church, when we hear the word of God, you you know what's happening right now is worship. We didn't finish worship when we finished the last song. It continues as we hear now the word of God together. The spirit is moving even in this place now. Touching hearts. Did you realize that? We're encountering God even now as we hear his word. So God has chosen to reveal himself to us in scripture. And he's done it using a number of different names. We learnt about last time how he revealed himself to Moses by the name Yahweh. But God is also referred to by other names in Scripture. There are lots of names by which God is referred to. So many that they have to be broken down into different segments because there are tons of them. As you begin to study them, more and more and more names pop out of the woodwork that God is called in the Bible. So much that the Dutch theologian, a man named Herman Bevink, he divides these names of God into three sections. He divides them into proper names, like Yahweh and like Elohim that we're studying today. He divides them into essential names, and that's attributes, you know. Uh, That's the things that God is. And then he divides them into a third category, which is personal names. Like in the New Testament, where Jesus teaches us to call God Father, doesn't he? Well, that's a personal, that's a familial name. So there's so many names, you've got to break them down into different categories. And today we're going to focus our attention on one of God's proper names. One of those names that is just like Yahweh. It's something that he's called over and over and over again by his people. And this name that God is called appears in the very first book of the Bible in Genesis 1.1. As we saw, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. As we said, that word for God in Genesis 1-1 is Elohim. You can see it written out there on the screen. 
And that word for God, that name for God, appears 28 more times, just in that first chapter of Genesis alone. Isn't that incredible? 28 times God is called Elohim in that first chapter in your Bible. And that name appears another 2,500 times in the Old Testament. So whenever you see the words, the Lord God, in the Old Testament, what's actually being translated there is Yahweh Elohim. Every time. If you see capitalized Lord and God, Yahweh Elohim. So this name Elohim has a ton of high-level significance to it. It's a really important name to God's people, and it's one that we want to understand. Now this word Elohim, where does it come from? Where does it derive from? What's its history? Well, in fact, it's so ancient. It's such an old word that there's debate amongst scholars as, as to how this word even came to be. Did you know that there's a study of words? There's a study of everything, isn't there? There's a study of words called etymology, which is basically the study of the history of how words came to be. And this word Elohim is so old that there's debate amongst etymologists as to where it came from and how it came to be. But we do know that the word El was a name that was used for God in the Near East millennia ago by lots of different people groups. They called, there was a God that they worshipped called El. And in fact, in the book of Job, God is called El a number of times. That word El, we know comes from the Hebrew words Ul or Allah, which means strong and mighty, or one to be feared. One to be feared. So we know the start of the word might have roots there as in calling God strong and mighty. Hallelujah. And also, God was one that was holy. He was one to be feared, which for me makes us calling him Father all the more amazing in the New Testament. So we know where the first bit comes from, but Elohim isn't El, is it? It's different, Elohim. And that Im, that's actually plural. That's like, you know how we get the letter S at the end of English words and we're making it plural? So instead of biscuit, we get biscuits, right? Well, im is like plural in the Hebrew. So Elohim is actually a plural word. It's not singular. And that's strange. It's, it's actually led to some scholars thinking that the, the Israelites actually began worshipping many gods. Now, I don't believe that's true, and I'll show you in a moment why. But it's led to some kind of scholars saying, ah, you see, that the Israelites never really worshipped just one God. They worshipped many because they called him Elohim, which is plural. But here's why I don't believe that's true. And that's why scholars don't believe that's entirely true. Because there are other Hebrew words that also are in the plural that refer to singular things. Like water is called mayim, right? Plural. The heavens, shamayim, plural, but singular entity. So that name, Elohim, doesn't necessarily mean that they were calling God plural name. They weren't saying there were many gods necessarily. Actually, that plural name is to indicate, we believe, the greatness of God over all. It's to indicate his fullness, his power. I'll read a quote for you from a guy called Larry Richards who wrote a book called Every Name of God in the Bible. Hebrew scholars typically describe this plural as a plural of majesty, 
rather than a true plural. That is, the plural doesn't suggest there are several gods, but rather that the one God so indicated is exalted above all. In fact, the Hebrew noun Elohim is consistently used with singular verb forms. This is all very nerdy. I'll finish there. But essentially, it's a plural word that just says, listen, God is so great. He's so mighty, so powerful that we can't just call him by a singular name. We call him by a plural name. And that name, Elohim, only appears with the Israelites, only appears with the Jews. No other people group ever called God Elohim. And we know in Deuteronomy 6.4 that that word Elohim is used to say that the Lord our God is one. In fact, that, that little verse there is called the Shema. And Jews all over the world recite that verse. Did you know that? They, they recite that verse, the Lord our God is one. It says, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Elohenu, Adonai Echad, which means, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And that Elohim there, even though it's plural, is referring to one God. So this Elohim does, word doesn't mean there's lots of gods, and it doesn't mean that the Jews began worshipping lots of gods. There's a bit of apologetics for you. So if ever you get caught in a debate with an atheist or somebody like that over the dinner table and they say, you know what, the name for God is plural. The Jews didn't worship one God, they worshipped many. You can say, hey, no, that's not a real plural. That's a plural of majesty. There you go. Apologetics, bam. So... What's interesting also about this word that appears in Genesis 1, Elohim, is that, have you ever noticed in Genesis 1.26, where it talks about God creating us, have you ever noticed how it says, let us make man in our own image? Let us make man. That's strange, isn't it, when you think about it? That's God having a conversation almost within himself about what he's going to do. And there does seem to be a little bit of a glimpse ahead to what the Bible's going to reveal about God as being a Trinitarian God. It leaves room for that. Again, I'll just give a quote to you. What is special about the plural Elohim that is in this word we have a term capable of communicating the unity of one God while allowing for a plurality of persons. No single name of God reveals all that may be known about him, but the name Elohim identifies God as the creator and it is unique and it sets forth the stage for future revelations of God's nature and character. This is deep stuff. Basically, Elohim leaves room for the Trinity. It leaves room for us to understand that it's Father, Son and Holy Spirit. That's incredible, isn't it? Now the fact that this name, Elohim, is first used to describe God creating the heavens and the earth is no accident. I'm going to teach you a little principle of Bible study. There's something called the law of first mention. The law of first mention. What that is, is simply any time you're studying something like grace or sacrifice or whatever it might be, whatever topic, look in the Bible for the first time that thing happens. So if it's sacrifice, you're looking at Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, Look for the first time that that kind of thing happens. And you'll find it way back in Genesis, where Isaac is about to be sacrificed uh, by Abraham. And that first mention there of sacrifice tells you something about every other sacrifice in the Bible. It's called the law of first mention. So it's no accident that this word Elohim is first mentioned talking about 
creation. It talks about God's power in creation. And that's what this name means. It's talking about God's power to create. It's talking about his power to uphold and to sustain all that he has created. It talks about the fact that he was before all creation. All right? God is not a created being. And Elohim tells us that. This is a God who existed before everything. Nothing pre-existed him. He wasn't brought into being by anything else. But it was him that brought all things into being. He is the creator. He is the creator of the cosmos. He is the great designer. He is the origin of all life, the master of the universe. That's what Elohim tells us. It tells us that all things that exist around us, mankind, whether they believe in God or whether they don't, the animal kingdom, the oceans, the jungles, the things that exist even outside of this planet, the galaxies, the nebulas, the stars, these things exist only because Elohim intended for them to exist. It tells us that your God is a creator. It tells us that everything that does exist in the natural world didn't happen by accident. It didn't come through blind evolutionary purposes, all right, as we get told in school these days. These things didn't occur just randomly over millions and billions of years, but rather they were the products of a grand designer. And I love watching nature shows. I always have enjoyed watching shows about God's creation. How many of you others like to spend hours watching about green frogs in the Amazon and how they feed themselves and raise their young. I love that stuff. And what this name Elohim tells us is that it was God who created that life. He designed that life for a purpose. And that is something that I believe we all know instinctively. We all know as children growing up that this didn't just all happen by random chance. This didn't just all happen because somebody you know, left a Petri dish open and suddenly, poof, there's a universe with a myriad of different species. You know instinctively that this stuff, the frogs, the trees, the jungles, the environments, these things were designed. This is intelligent life that I'm looking at. This didn't happen by accident. We know that intent intuitively. You have to have that trained out of you. You have to be brainwashed to think otherwise. And we know intuitively that this is the work of an artist, don't we? Let me just begin to argue this point through using picture language. And then we'll move on to some incredible evidences for God as creator. Let me just say this to you. If you were to look at a piece of art, let's say a painting by the artist Monet. Right Now I'm no art enthusiast. Becca knows a lot more about this than me. But if you were to look at a piece of work by Monet, you would immediately know this painting didn't arise out of millions of years of random events. The entropy of paint just falling as it did on the canvas, mixing the colors just right. You'd know that was nonsense to think like that. You'd know intuitively this piece of work had an artist and a very good artist. This painting was designed. This painting was created. Think again about the inner workings of your mobile phone. You use it every day. But if you were to open that mobile phone up and look 
at the circuitry. Look at how that phone works. Look at the liquid crystal display. You don't ask yourself, wow, I wonder how many millions of years of evolution this took to come together. Wow. You know, it's incredible. You just wouldn't think that way. It's weird to do that. But when people look at nature, which is infinitely more complex than a painting, infinitely more complex than an iPhone, they say, oh, it all happened by accident. Think for a second, brothers and sisters, about the human cell. We're talking about microscopic level of life here. But inside of a human cell, there are literally millions of pieces of codified, specific information that exist within your DNA that tell your body how to recreate you. It's information that lives within a tiny cell that you can't even see with your natural eye. That's insane. That kind of complexity doesn't occur randomly, and we know that to be true intuitively, don't we? The appearance of design in the universe is overwhelming. And even many scientists are ready to admit this. Let me read you a few quotes to prove it. Paul Davis, who's a physicist, he said this, quote, The laws of physics seem themselves to be the product of exceedingly ingenious design. There is, for me, powerful evidence that something is going on behind it all. It seems as though someone's fine-tuned nature's numbers to make the universe the impression of design is overwhelming. Fred Hoyle, an astronomer, he said this, quote, A super intellect has monkeyed with the physics as well as with the chemistry and the biology, end quote. And then Richard Dawkins, the atheist, he said this, quote, Biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose, end quote. Even scientists admit this. In fact, I'm going to tell you about some research which blows my mind. This research works out the mathematical chance of life evolving out of nothing. It's a guy called Douglas Axe, and he wanted to calculate the probability of getting just one positive evolutionary change at the cellular level, right? That's big words, but stick with me. I know it's a Sunday afternoon. So what he did in his lab is he tried to figure out with his team how likely it was that even at the tiniest, tiniest level, we would see evolution working, right? Because if you see it at a tiny level, at a molecular level, that's good evidence that it's happening at a larger, upscaled level. What he found with his team was that the chances of getting just one, just one positive change by natural selection and random mutation was roughly one in a trillion, 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 trillion. That's no chance. That's no chance. So judging by those statistics, the universe just hasn't even been around long enough for evolutionary forces to do anything at all. Douglas Axe said, you can't get remarkable things by accident. That's an intuition which is solid and empirically confirmed. So, brothers and sisters, let's move on from all the facts. We know this world is created. We know Elohim brought everything into existence. So if God Elohim is the creator of all that exists, what does that mean for us? 
What does that mean for you today? Firstly, it means this. There is no place in the entire universe where God is not God. There's no galaxy, no nebula, no human heart, no person over whom or which he is not God. doesn't matter what you believe. I think that's something we get confused about these days. Oh, he's not my God. I don't believe in any God. He's not my God. Yes, he is. Yes, he is your God. You don't make him God. You don't make him Lord. He is your God. He is your Lord. You just get to acknowledge it. Everything and everyone was created by God. And that means everything and everyone has a purpose within his heart. And that purpose, I'm telling you right now, is greater than any purpose that any creature could come up with themselves. It gives purpose to every life. Because that purpose in God's heart, you ever think of this? The purpose for your life, the purpose for your existence on this planet, was known by God before a single atom existed. Before a single atom existed, before time began, God knew you. He knew what you would do in your life. He knew the purpose for which you would exist. And that's the same for every person that has ever lived. Isn't that wonderful? The same is true of the natural world. All of it has a purpose. It is through God, through Elohim, that every life and everything has meaning and purpose. And that doesn't change whether people believe in God or not. Even those who reject God still have a purpose in his plan. He will glorify himself through their destruction if they don't turn to worship him. He has a purpose in everything. The second thing we know If God has created all things, it means that all life and all creation has inherent value and worth. Everything, every life has worth. It has value. Just as that, we talked about that painting, that Monet painting, it would have a high value, wouldn't it? It would have a high value because of who painted it. Because it's a Monet original. And so when we think about what God has created, we're not talking about some human artist. We're talking about the supernatural being who pre-existed everything. So anything that he creates has infinite value and infinite worth just because of the fact that he created it. That's especially true of the human race. The Bible tells us that he made us in his image. And so... This gives every human life, regardless of color, background, language, culture, size, development, ability or disability. It gives every human life precious worth and value. And that's why as Christians we fight for the protection of every life. Not just the ones that look like ours, but every life. Because every life has value and worth because God created it. Thirdly, If God created everything that exists, if Elohim made everything, he's the God who creates, it means this. It means that every other thing that does exist, every other thing apart from Elohim, is not God. 
Every other thing apart from God is not God. That's a simple thing to say. But I think it's one that humans get wrong every day. There's nothing else in this whole universe that's worthy of being worshipped as God should be worshipped. Everything else, whether it's galaxies, stars, whether it's people, cultures, music, whatever, everything else is created, it's derivative, it's finite, it's passing away. It's not worthy of worship. Ministries are passing away. They're not worthy of worship. But how many in church these days are caught up worshipping their own ministry? How many people in church today are just building ministries, worshipping the platform? That stuff is not God. When you worship anything that's not God, do you know there's a word for that? It's called idolatry. It's very serious. We must always be sure that we are worshipping God, how he has deigned for himself to be worshipped. We worship God according to his word. It's not a good idea to worship other things that he's created. Romans 1 tells us that. It says this, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. How many people go around worshipping the creature rather than the creator? How many people worship themselves? You know, the God of the age that we live in is not a wooden idol. It's self. Self is the God of the age. And we will sacrifice everything on the altar of self. Have you ever noticed this? This is the God who exists in culture. It's you. You're supposed to be the one who's worshipped in culture. That's why Christianity is so countercultural. Because we refuse to worship self. We refuse to put self first. We put God first. But in culture, we put ourselves first. God comes second. Sorry, God, I can't, I can't serve you today. I've got to serve myself. I need to worship myself today. Anything other than God is not worthy of worship. That's what that means. Fourthly, this is wonderful. All creation speaks of him. Because he's made it, he leaves his fingerprints on it. Everything God has created speaks of him. He's revealed to us through nature. We can know something about God, of his existence, and of what kind of God he is through looking at what he's created. And that's why... I love looking at nature programs. It just blows my mind. The complexity, the diversity in nature. It's amazing. And people are amazing, aren't they? Much as they do my head in at times, people are still amazing. They're so complex. No one person is identical to another person. It's amazing. God speaks to us through his creation. The next thing we can know about this Elohim is that all creation is ultimately for him. 
Your life is not for you. Did you know that? Your life was not created for you. Your life wasn't meant for your enjoyment. Although we are supposed to enjoy life, that's not the ultimate purpose of your life. Your life, according to the Bible, is for him. Romans 11.36 says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. So every human life was created for God. Everything that exists, every mountain, every tree, all those things were made to glorify God. They were made to speak of him. I want to say this today. You were made for God. Your body, your mind, your soul, they were created to worship God. Your purpose in life is to enjoy him, it's to know him, to be loved by him and to love him. That was what Adam and Eve were originally created for, wasn't it? For fellowship with God, to walk with him, to know him. The fall destroyed that fellowship, but with Christ we see that fellowship restored. And just as God left his fingerprints on nature and creation... He has left his fingerprint, especially on the church. If you know Jesus today, if you're filled with his spirit, he lives in you. He lives in his church. He's on the earth today through the power of the Holy Spirit in his church. Isn't that amazing? His chosen people are filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what we celebrate today at Pentecost. And through Christ, God is reconciling all creation. He's reconciling it, restoring it, renewing it, redeeming it. From fallenness. Romans 8, 19 to 22 says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Brothers and sisters, we know that one day, not only the church, but in fact all creation will acknowledge that Elohim is God, that Christ is Lord. One day everyone will acknowledge that. One day every knee will bow. Don't wait until that day to acknowledge him as God. Don't wait till that day. It'll be too late by then. Do it now. Acknowledge Christ now as Savior. Acknowledge God as God today. Isaiah 55, 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. I want to say, God is still in the business of creating. He's still the creator God. And he's creating new life all over the world today. And that creation is maybe even more incredible than the creation we read about in Genesis 1 because the life he's creating today, he is creating in the most inhospitable of environments, in the sinful, unbelieving heart of man. The most inhospitable place in the world. 1 Corinthians 2 says, The natural man receiveth not the things of God. They're foolishness to him. So what has to happen in the natural heart of man is that the Holy Spirit has to come in and literally create a new heart to make you born again, to give you a new heart, a new life in God. Now that's incredible. 
My question is today, do you have that new life in you? Do you have that new birth? Are you born again? 2 Corinthians 5, I'll finish here, says, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Hallelujah. For our sake, he made him who, who knew no sin to be sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Let's stand and pray. I'm going to invite Mike to come back up. You know, the Holy Spirit, as we've talked about today already, the Holy Spirit is power. The Holy Spirit is literally power for life. And when he touches you, when he touches you, when he comes upon you, it's impossible for you to remain the same. You know, Paul Washer is a, an evangelist. He tells this story of a man who was once late to speak at a conference. And this man was late speaking at a conference and he, he arrives at the conference and they say, you know, Brother John, where were you? You were supposed to be preaching half an hour ago. He said, uh, I'm sorry, I got hit by a truck on the way over. And the guy speaking to him looked at him strangely and said, what, what do you mean you got hit by a truck? You look fine to me. The moral of the story here is, there are many who claim to be Christians. But in the same way that if you get hit by a truck, it's going to look like something. If you get filled by the Spirit... It's going to look like something. It's going to mean the death of you. How many of you are ready to die? That's what Christianity is about, isn't it? We die to self. We live to Christ. How many of your lives look different since you chose Christ? How many of you have forsaken the sins that you once walked in? This is what Christianity is. It's about dying to self and living to God through the power of the Spirit. I want us to just close our eyes as we finish up in worship now. And I want for you, if you are hungry for that new birth, I want you to pray right now that the, that the God of heaven the God who created all things would fill your heart today and make you new and make the old heart that was stony and rejected him, take it out of you and put in there instead a new heart that responds to him. I want you to do business with God now. Maybe if you're a Christian and you've been stuck in a rut, because that can happen too. You've been stuck in a rut. You've been living out this life that's been dry for a few months. And you just need a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit. Call on him now. Put your hands out and receive his Holy Spirit afresh today. Father God, we thank you that through the Spirit of God, you create new life in us.
We thank you that you're still Elohim. You are still creating. We give glory to you for all that you have made. And we give glory to you for the new life you've made in us. We pray today for a fresh outpouring of your Holy Spirit, Lord God. A fresh infilling. And a fresh taste of that new life that you give through Jesus Christ. We pray this in your mighty name. Amen. Let's sing together before we close.